Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? Did you know Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know? Those are tender Christmas lyrics by a singer named Mark Lowry who help us remember how Mary processed the amazing news of Christ's birth. And this year, it would be good for us to consider during Advent what Christmas was like through the eyes of Mary, this blessed woman among women, Mary. That's how Elizabeth describes her, you know, in Luke chapter 1, verse 42. Elizabeth calls Mary blessed among women. And I think churches like ours have shied away from the life of Mary uh, because we don't want to be misunderstood about her. We don't want to be compared to other churches that uh, teach doctrines about Mary that, frankly, we don't find in the Bible. For instance, while we would agree that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, at Windsor Road, we do not teach Mary's perpetual virginity. That is, that she remained a virgin her entire life. Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56 indicate very clearly that Mary and Joseph had at least six other children after Jesus was born. So we don't teach Mary's perpetual virginity. And and we wouldn't teach the doctrine of immaculate conception either. That is, when Mary was conceived by her parents... At that point of conception, God supernaturally cleansed her in her mother's womb so that she was immaculate, that is, without sin or sin nature. While we believe that Jesus is without sin, the rest of us, including Mary, need grace for our sins. So we don't teach the Immaculate Conception here at Windsor Road. And we wouldn't teach the doctrine of the assumption of Mary, the assumption of Mary. This doctrine says that Mary died in the presence of the apostles, but when they checked her tomb upon the request of Thomas, she was gone. And then the apostles put two and two together and concluded that Mary was assumed into heaven. Now, we might call that a church tradition or a legend, but we wouldn't call that a doctrine, the assumption of Mary. So what do we have here? Well, what we have is what we don't teach about Mary. That's what we, don't have. That's what we have. And unfortunately, churches like ours have uh, for too long gone to the other extreme. We've been silent about her. We're known more for what we don't say about Mary than what we need to say about Mary. And we've not said enough about her amazing life. And so for Advent, I'd like for us to look at some scriptures that involve Mary. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And I want you to see Mary in this first Sunday of Advent as a devoted woman of God who responded to the call of God for a mission 
of God. That's what I want you to see about Mary. I want you to see Mary as the very first Christian. The very first Christian. We'll see in these verses that she was the first to respond to the gospel message as it was given to her. And then I want you to hear words from Mary's mouth that absolutely unraveled her life. So that's what we're going to learn about this amazing woman. Now, in Luke chapter 1, after Luke makes it absolutely clear in verses 1 through 4 that what he is about to write in his gospel is based on eyewitness testimony, chapter 1 verse 2, Luke then takes us, beginning in verse 5, to the temple in Jerusalem. He takes us to a godly man named Zechariah, who's a priest, who is serving uh, his duty in the temple. He takes us to Zechariah's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense in the temple. And while performing this sacred duty in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah receives this miraculous vision from the angel Gabriel telling him that God is on the move. God is initiating something in history. God is set to do something that has never before been done in history, and that will involve Zechariah. Even though Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are beyond their childbearing years, Elizabeth is going to have a baby through Zechariah. And this baby's sole mission in life, the very reason why this baby exists, is summarized in Luke 1, verse 17. The very last phrase, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That would be the entire mission of John the Baptist's life. And when that mission is accomplished, John is done. Well, Zechariah at this vision is absolutely startled. He is gripped with fear and he's unconvinced. How can I be sure of this? He says, as if the appearance of an angel weren't enough. Gabriel responds, uh, dude, dude, loosely paraphrased, verse 19, uh, dude, I, I'm Gabriel. I stand before the presence of the Lord. You want a sign? Fine, I'm gonna give you a sign. I'm gonna padlock your lips until this happens. And then you know what happens next? The scene ends. And Zechariah cannot speak until the day the baby is named. All that time, all of that time, Elizabeth must have thought, what a pleasant miracle. <laughs> and then we jump from Jerusalem to this no-name town. Nazareth. Now, by the way, let me help you read the first three chapters of Luke. In Luke chapters 1 through 3, the scene shifts back and forth, back and forth from John the Baptist to Jesus. 
We have the birth of John the Baptist foretold. Then we go to the birth of Jesus foretold. Then there's Mary's song. We'll hear that next week. And then there's Zechariah's song at the end of chapter 1. And then there's the birth of John the Baptist. And there's the birth of Jesus. And so it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the point is this. John the Baptist's birth is extraordinary. And Jesus' birth is beyond extraordinary. Beyond extraordinary. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 26, Luke transports us from the temple in this highly populated capital city to a no-name city. Jerusalem was this very public, very populated, very famous capital city. And then we go to Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Where's Nazareth? This puny little village where a 600 square foot house stood in which an anonymous young lady lived. We go from a male priest to a female layperson. Zachariah, an older man, Mary, probably in her teens. And she's just doing life in this no-name town when the angel Gabriel invades her world with this incredible news. This uh, news, this, this is your day of grace message. Today, Gabriel says, God is giving you his grace. Verse 28, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So listen, whatever else happens to Mary, whatever else follows in her life, Gabriel says, the Lord is going to be with you. The Lord is going to equip you. The Lord is going to be her strength. And she is going to need it. This news spooks and perplexes Mary. So the angel says again in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Favor is the word grace. Grace. You see, in Scripture, God's grace is more than just mercy and forgiveness. God's grace is a calling. God's grace is a vocation. God's grace is a commissioning for service to him. And Gabriel gives the amazing news that God's grace has visited Mary to such a degree that she will give birth to Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Verse 31, you will be with child and will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now that phrase, son of the most high, is a, is a highly layered term, meaning her son is divine, her son is royal, her son is in the lineage of Israel's King David, her son will bring God's favor and mercy and grace to the nations, and her son's kingdom will never end. It will last forever. Verses 32 and 33. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now notice Gabriel did not say that her son would not die. He simply said that he would reign forever. Gabriel gives Mary this 
amazing news that God has set himself to do something that's never been done before. God is initiating the unprecedented. God in the person of Jesus is coming to this world to establish his eternal saving kingdom. So whatever else we can say about Christmas, we must say this. Christmas starts with God. Christmas comes from God. Gabriel was sent by God. Christmas is an act of God in history. And Mary, you are the first to be affected by this. And she responds in verse 34, how will this be? How will this be? Now notice, I mean, her tone is not like that of Zechariah. She doesn't demand proof. She just lacks information. Unlike Zechariah, this seasoned, older, presumably more mature believer who is a priest, Mary this teenage young lady who has quietly worked in this no-name village hamlet, she just can't wrap her brain around this. The difference between Zechariah and Mary is that while Mary does not demand to see, she just confesses her inability to see. And why? Verse 34 finishes... How will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, literally, verse 34 reads, I've never known a man. To know uh, is an idiom in the Bible for sexual relations. I've never known a man. I don't have a husband, Mary says, to which Gabriel responds, you, do, you won't need one. You won't need one. Because God is about to do something he's never done before. That's why. His power will cause your pregnancy. Verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, understand. Those verbs come upon and overshadow, those are not idioms. Those are not sexual idioms at all. Elsewhere in the Bible, those phrases are used to describe the miraculous activity of God. God's way of breaking into the universe was through the womb of a virgin. Verse 31, you will give him the name Jesus. Why? Because Jesus or Yeshua, or Joshua, or Esau, means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Saves from what? Our sins. Matthew 1, 21. He will save the people from their sins. Don't you see? God's invasion is for our salvation. It's interesting, in the first century, Horace, who was a Roman poet, once gave this advice to his students 
when he was instructing them as to how to write plays. This is what Horace said. He said, a god must not be introduced into the action unless the plot has gotten into such a tangle that only a god can unravel it. Hmm. He spoke more than he knew because that is the condition of our world, isn't it? It's tangled. And yet Christmas is for the tangled. Christmas is for the tangled. Christmas, Christmas is for those tangled to a past they cannot undo. Christmas is for those who look in the mirror and see guilt and ugliness. Christmas is for daughters whose fathers never told them they were beautiful. Christmas is for the son whose father keeps giving him hunting gear when he wants art materials. Christmas is for lives wrecked by cancer and the thought of another Christmas seems impossible. Christmas is for those who would be lonely if not for social media. Christmas is for those whose marriages are at the edge of a cliff far worse than the one in Washington. Christmas is for smokers who cannot quit even in the face of a death sentence. Christmas is for prostitutes and adulterers and porn stars who long for love in every wrong place. Christmas is for parents watching their children's marriage fall into disarray. Christmas is really for those who find it hardest to enjoy. In fact, Christmas is for those who hate it most. And that's why God invaded our world. That's why he set himself to do something unprecedented. And that's why Gabriel's announcement came to a remote, offline village in Galilee. Think about it. Had Christ been born to rank and luxury, then they would have said that wealth transformed the world. If Christ had been born in the great city of Rome, then they would have said that civil power was what transformed the world. If Christ had been born son of Caesar, they would have said, well, how convenient it is to be so powerful. But in fact, what did God do? He chose surroundings that were poor and simple, so ordinary as to go unnoticed, so that people would know that only God can do this. God alone can change the world. And that's the reason why he chose this young mother from among the poor of a very poor country, and that's why he himself became poor. God set himself up to do something unprecedented, something that's never been done before. God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth came to this world to establish his eternal saving kingdom. That's the news Gabriel gave to Mary. But we're not done. We're not done, you see, because notice how this is going to get done. This is going to get done through willing, devoted servants. And thus Mary. And this is where her words simply unravel her life in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I am the Lord's servant. 
You could equally have said, I am the Lord's slave. But that's a little grittier, isn't it? To, I, I can call myself a servant because that implies service that I need to perform. But when I call myself a slave, that means I belong to someone. And I belong to their will. And Mary says, I am the Lord's slave. I am the Lord's doulos. Doulos. Which in fact was a derogatory term in the Roman Empire. Where one in six of the population were slaves. One in six. And part of the scourge of slavery was being called one. And yet Mary self-identifies. Why? Did she realize what it would cost her? Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know? It's a sweet song. Maybe too sweet. I propose another verse. Mary, did you know that your unwed birth would put your life in danger? Mary, did you know that your hometown would taunt you as a stranger? Did you know that Joseph planned to end his ties with you? The shame that you now bear, your family bears it too? Mary, did you know? Oh, we don't want to hear those lyrics. No, no, no. They spoil our precious memories portrait of Mary. And too many of us prefer that. But that is not the real Mary. No. Luke gives us the real Mary. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And, and I will say that the easiest place for Mary to have said that was right there in that room in front of Gabriel. That's the easiest place it's going to be to say that. You know what? This, is, this room is the easiest place to say I am the Lord's servant. But then Gabriel has to leave and then she has to leave. She's got to leave the house and she's got to face her world and she's got to face her village and she's got to face her parents and she has to face her betrothed who were conservative Torah-following Hebrew people who had not heard Gabriel's words, who had not seen Gabriel's face, and who very well concluded that Mary was not only an adulteress, but she's a liar too. Scott McKnight, in his well-written book, The Real Mary, says, Mary's may it be to Gabriel occurred months before her I do to Joseph. And on that day, Mary heard the strange news from God that she would conceive out of wedlock as a part of God's plan? That's not how God or the Jewish law worked. And in first century conservative rural Jewish village life, that's not how their society worked either. How would her life ever be normal again? How would her friends or her family or the village of Nazareth ever look at her the same again? Wouldn't they always presume her adultery? Wouldn't they call her son Mamzer a slanderous term for illegitimate children? Is it any wonder then that she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth? Yet in saying, I am the Lord's servant... 
Mary takes her hands off her life. For Jesus' sake, God calls Mary to be misunderstood, to be gossiped about. In saying, I am the Lord's servant, she not only takes her hands off her life, but she takes her hands off of his life. She does not get naming rights. You will call his name Jesus. God named the child because it's his child. And Mary's life reminds us what our lives will look like when we truly become servants of the Lord. She prays this no-strings-attached prayer, and God takes her up on it. And she does this not as a 50-something clergy in a temple. She does this as a teenager in a no-name town. And her life would never be normal again, ever. Her family, her friends, her hometown village, they'd never look at her the same. And at, 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 at least at first, very few would believe her story. And yet in faith, she believed the message. She responded to the gospel. In faith, she consented to God's plan. In faith, she believed, verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Literally, verse 37, for no word of God is powerless. Think about that. God never speaks a feeble word, ever. In faith, she makes it her ambition to please God. In faith, Mary trusted that one way or another, God would take care of her. And in faith, Mary self-identifies as a servant, and she doesn't see that as a derogatory term because she knows that her master loves her. In faith, Mary begins to deny herself, take up her cross, and follow Jesus before he was born. In faith, Mary began to suffer for the Messiah before he suffered for her. And that's why we can call her the very first Christian. Because she prayed the most radical prayer that you can ever pray. I am the Lord's servant May it be to me as you have said. Centuries ago, Martin Luther once said, how many came in contact with her, talked, ate, and drank with her, who perhaps despised her and counted her but a common, poor, and simple village maiden, and who had they known would have fled from her in terror. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. You willing to say that? Who are you here in these verses? Who are you? Are you Zechariah? Or are you Mary? You demanding a sign? Or are you just humbly seeking a word from God 
I am the Lord's servant. You willing to take your hands off your life? You willing to take your hands off your stuff? You willing to take your hands off of someone else's life? Trusting that however much we serve Jesus, trusting that however much we serve Jesus, that will in no way outweigh what he does to serve us. See, that's what's amazing about her life. She serves him with, with, without full comprehension of what one day he would do for her as she stood there at the foot of the cross and watched him die for her. For her. I am the Lord's servant, she said, all the way to the cross as she saw her son die for her sins. As she saw her son be the ultimate Lord's servant. The servant that we read of in Isaiah. The sovereign Lord comes with power. The power of salvation. The power of redemption. The power of a shepherd for his sheep. The power of the cross. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Shall we pray?